Let's pray. Our holy God, Father, Son, and Spirit, as we turn our attention to your word, we pray that in mercy and in kindness you would meet with us. God, I pray that you would allow the incredibly massive truths in this chapter to make their way into our hearts. God, I pray that you would help us be dazzled by nothing more than what it means to belong to you. And so I'm begging you that over the next few moments, you would arrest our souls. You would captivate and hold our attention. You would overwhelm us with what it means to be loved by a God like yourself. I am well aware that the task before me this morning is far greater than anything that I can do. And so I just throw myself on your mercy. Would you grant grace? Please meet with us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You ever stop and think to yourself, what must it be like to belong to a family who owns a major league sports team? I mean, free admission, free food, and all the games you could want? All right, maybe you're thinking that doesn't relate. Have you ever thought to yourself, what must it be like to belong to the family of a world-renowned musician or music artist? Unlimited free concerts, unlimited swag, meet and greets, hanging with the band. Okay, maybe not. Um, have you ever thought to yourself, what must it be like to belong to the royal family in England? Uh, I didn't ask our resident UK members, but in doing some research this week, I just thought, what are the perks of belonging to the royal family? And uh, there are many. Can you imagine having a personal wardrobe valet who picked out your clothes every day, including even ironing the shoelaces on the shoes that you wear? Can you imagine being a part of a family who owns all the dolphins and whales that come within a three-mile radius of all of Britain's shores? Can you imagine even being the king driving around, not needing a driver's license or flying internationally and not needing a passport. All right, so maybe if you've never asked yourself any of those questions, then what is it for you? Uh, what is it that you think in your mind, if I had those privileges, then that would be the best this life had to offer? Well, our passage this morning will give us a glimpse into the correct answer, the best answer to that question. If I could have all of these privileges, it would be the best that life has to offer. 
You see, unlimited perks that come from belonging to certain families who have great wealth or who have great power or who have great status, while that must be exciting, it will all fall short of the awe-inspiring wonder of what it means to belong to God himself. And I wonder this morning, do you believe that's true? In your mind, is there an earthly lifestyle that comes with the best this life has to offer. And for you, that surpasses the riches that are found in belonging to God. I mean, it would be easy this morning to say, well, of course not, and nothing compares to that. But I wonder what your heart and your lifestyle say on a daily basis to that question. In his book, God is the Gospel, John Piper asked this question, which I think is relevant. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you have ever had on earth and all the food you've ever liked and all the leisure activities that you've ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties that you've ever seen, all the physical pleasures that you've ever tasted, no human conflict, no natural disasters, could you be satisfied in that place if Christ Jesus weren't there? Said another way. What makes this life worth living for you? What is the greatest reward and reality that this life affords? Well, Exodus 19 will set before us several of the unlimited number of wonders that are found in belonging to our God. This morning, we'll trace three of those wonders as we make our way through all of Exodus chapter 19, and as we watch and we listen to the experience of God's people, then we should be reminded that Exodus 19 not merely serves as a preservation of history so we know what happened to them, but an invitation for us to come to the riches that are found, the storehouse, the treasure trove of riches that are found to anyone who belongs to this God. And the invitation this morning is that if you've shown up and you don't belong to him, you don't have to leave that way. You can belong to this God. We too can know the awe-inducing wonder of belonging to God. In fact, that's what you were created for. And in fact, your soul will be restless until you find your joys and your rest in him. Over the past few weeks, we've witnessed a two million plus people caravan miraculously passing through the Red Sea. They're traveling through the desert to this mountain that they arrive at in our passage, Mount Sinai. After 14,600 days of slavery, if you do the math, that's 40 years, If you think then about, about uh, excuse me, 40 years, after 146,000 days in slavery and some 60 more of wandering in the desert, they arrive at their destination. And it would be hard to overemphasize what happens here in Sinai. Most commentators and scholars believe that that this chapter is the heart of the book of Exodus. 
But not only the heart of the book of Exodus, but also the heart of the Old Testament. God's people, having been enslaved some 400 years, crying out, generations passing, God miraculously delivering, and God's people arrive here at the base of Mount Sinai, and they're here for almost an entire year. The record of the time that they spend here begins in our chapter in Exodus 19, runs all the way through all of Leviticus, even into the book of Numbers to chapter 10. That much real estate is given to what happens in this almost 12 months of being at Mount Sinai. In Exodus chapter 1, verse 18, God has revealed to the people who he is. And now in chapter 19, God will remind the people who they are. Three wonders that we'll trace this morning of belonging to God. The first one is this. The wonder of being brought to God. The wonder of being brought to God. Verses 1 through 6. It's the passage that Jessica read for us this morning. God's people travel from Rephidim to Mount Sinai. And they come to the flat plain that would stretch out at the base of this mountain. And in verse 3 we read that Moses went up to God. And the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel. Only Moses goes up the mountain to meet with God. What's interesting is if you were to go back to Exodus chapter 3, where Moses meets with the Lord in and through the burning bush, most scholars would believe that Mount Horeb is the same mountain as Mount Sinai. Exodus chapter 3, verse 12, this is what the Lord says, Certainly I will be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. And so Exodus 19 is a fulfillment of what God said in Exodus chapter 3 to Moses. And as Moses ascends the mountain, this message, this conversation isn't only for Moses and God. It's a message that Moses would receive that he's meant to turn around and give to God's people. What was that message? That message consisted of two main things. Verse 4, their deliverance. And verses 5 and 6, their calling. Their deliverance and their calling. This is what the Lord wanted Moses to remind God's people of. Their deliverance in verse 4 is this brief summary of what happens in Exodus chapter 4 through Exodus chapter 18. How it was that God redeemed them. And Moses reminds them that they have been eyewitnesses to these things. If you were here last week, you saw how Moses recounted the story of what God has done, uh, what God had done to Jethro, and Jethro believed. This isn't the story that you're hearing secondhand. No, God tells Moses, tell the people what they saw, what they witnessed, what they experienced, 
was a salvation, was my salvation. Their salvation came through God's judgment upon the Egyptians. You'll remember the scene as they cross over or they cross through the Red Sea and they turn around and the waters envelop the Egyptian army. And, and God's people began to see the bodies on the shore. And it was a, a visual reminder that their salvation came through God's judgment upon others. In this passage, God is tenderly reminding them of his work in their redemption, his work in their deliverance. But it wasn't just, remember the judgment, there's this strikingly personal language that the Lord uses here. God's people are meant to feel and to perceive God's personal affection for them as they hear these words about his deliverance. Look again at verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. He bore them as on eagles' wings. The Lord alone is responsible for their salvation. He alone is responsible for their safe journey. It's owing to the Lord's initiative. It's owing to the Lord's action that these people have been delivered. The book of Deuteronomy is Moses just, again, retelling the story this re-giving of the account of what has, what has happened thus far. Deuteronomy chapter 32 is a song that Moses gives. And at one point, it describes even this, God's particular care for his people. Listen to the lyrics of Moses' song in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 9 through 12. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of a wilderness. He encircled him. Watch, begin to see the image. He encircled him. He cared for him. He guarded him as the pupil of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young. He spread his wings and caught them and carried them on his pinions. The Lord alone guided him, and there was no foreign God with him. He made him ride high on the places of the earth, and he provided. The Lord wants his people to know that their salvation has come because the Lord has acted on their behalf. It was he who bore them. It was he who carried them. It was he who delivered them. But perhaps the most precious truth of what the Lord reveals isn't merely what God did, but where God brought them. Look at how verse 4 ends. I bore you on eagle's wings, and I brought you to myself. To myself. This flight from Egypt was more uh, was about more than Sinai 
This flight from Egypt was about God bringing his people to himself. God didn't save them merely to be free from slavery. No, God saved them so that his people would be with him. Victor Hamilton says, God's primary purpose of bonding with Israel is for the rapturous enjoyment of one another's presence. God wanted them to know him. God wanted his people to be with him before they were ever chosen and plucked out and called to do anything for him. They were chosen and plucked out and called to have fellowship with him. God never only rescues his people from something. He always rescues his people to something. It's not just from slavery. Yes, praise be to God that happened, but it was to him. The salvation of the Lord is by him. The salvation of the Lord is to him. And so let's just call it for what it is. If this morning you don't want him, then you don't want his salvation. Because the greatest reward in his salvation is not merely that your sins have been forgiven. It's not merely that you no longer have to carry around shame for your sins. No, the greatest reward of your salvation is that with no more shame and no more dismal record, you can get your God. You can belong to him. And I promise there will be a thousand other ways you will hear that more eloquently, but I promise you will not hear greater news than this. Think about your life. If you are a professing Christian, think about your life. What is it that your heart wants more than anything else? Does your heart want God's forgiveness? Or does your heart long for life with the God who has forgiven you? There's a difference. All throughout the Bible, God is not merely a means to a greater end. It doesn't get greater than him. All scripture testifies that all humanity is utterly incapable of finding our way to God. And so do you know what all humanity needs? All humanity needs you this morning. You need what Israel needed, what God's people in the Old Testament needed. You need for the Lord to act and to, to give the initiative and to bear you like on eagle's wings. You need God to bring you to him. Like our forebears and forefathers, if you were a professing Christian, you have seen too, not the sight of the Egyptian army washing up on the shore. You too have seen the sight of the judgment of God being poured out on the the Savior, Jesus the Christ, who would stand in the place of sinners and who would bear their punishment and who would be buried and then on the third day would rise victoriously from 
the grave, defeating sin and death. And that good news is not merely a universal good news. It is a conditioned good news. And the condition is not that you have to work your way in order to earn that good news. The condition is that you stop your working and you throw yourself on this mercy that can only come, only come in the same way that the forefather Abraham. How is it that he was credited as righteous? Because he believed. And so the good news this morning is that there is a way for you to avoid judgment that's due every sinner. And that is by believing that Jesus was the acceptable, perfect wrath absorber shielding you. Bearing your penalty so that you might know this kind of God and that you might belong to him. Not as one who will receive his wrath, but because of grace and mercy and the work of Jesus, one who will receive his salvation. If you were a professing Christian, you got here because of the wings of God that carried you. You have a great salvation. Christian, this is your story. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. Why? Why in the world would the just die for the unjust? Peter tells us, so that he might bring us to God. The heart of the book of Exodus is, is God bringing his people close to himself. He brought them out. He lifted them up. He drew them close. That's their calling. Or that's their deliverance. Now think about their calling. Verses 5 and 6. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. After reminding them of God's work of deliverance, of God's work of salvation, he then calls them. Most commentators and scholars would say, this is God entering into covenant with his people. He lays out the terms of what he's done and the conditions for what now they must do. It is a deadly mistake if we switch the order. What he has done, verse 4, is meant to motivate them to gladly trust and fear and obey. Their calling, verses 5 and 6, is built on what he has done in verse 4. And there is a propensity in our hearts to get that order mixed. Verses 5 and 6 are not conditions for how we achieve the riches that are found in verse 4. It's not... Let me give you my law, you obey, and then I will deliver you. No, Sinai follows the Exodus. And Exodus informs what happens at the Mount of Sinai. God saves through the blood of the Passover lamb, and then he calls them to obey. If their deliverance, if their salvation was contingent on their ability to obey what the Lord has said, they would still be in slavery. They would have never been freed. But having been delivered, having received salvation, they are to obey and to keep covenant because of what they experienced. And again, the same is true for Christians today. 
If, if we seek to grasp salvation and deliverance through our obedience, that's like us grasping at air. Man, we may work ourselves in a frenzy, and at the end of the day, we have this. Nothing to show for it. We can't achieve the deliverance of God based on our works. It is only owing to His grace. And yet those who have experienced His grace, as a people who have experienced His grace, there's now not just new rules to follow, there's now new affections for, for this one. There's now new longings. There's now new desires. And so we do then submit ourselves, obey, keeping covenant. And, and, and I love what the Lord makes clear to the people. He wants them to know that the reward for such obedience is not that they get salvation. They've already got it. They've been delivered. But the reward is that they then are a people for his own possession. They are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And what makes this kind of promise so stunning is who he's given it to. Just go back over the last few chapters and just look how when there was distress, these people were people who quickly began to write off God. He's forgotten about us. He just brought us out here so that we would die. Like, why are we still here? Let's go back into slavery. They are persistent grumblers, arrogant testers of the Lord. And yet the Lord says, you will be my personal treasure? I mean, all of the earth is his. It all belongs to his, uh, to him. But he's chosen this people. He has set his affection on this people. Why? Again, Moses is writing about this. Deuteronomy chapter 7, beginning in verse 6. He reminds the people, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth... The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. No, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. Well, then why? Verse 8. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Therefore, Know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keeps his commandments. God chose them because he loved them. And so not only would they be his prized possession, they would also be a kingdom of priests. The priest was the one who mediated between Two parties, this party being the people of God and God himself. God's people, they would be a people who would have the knowledge and would have access to him. 
they would be able to call upon the Lord, not merely have to go through. And the same then is true for his people today. We see this priesthood of all believers. Because of the work of Christ, there's no need for another man or priest to stand between us and God. They would not only be his prized possession and a kingdom of priests, but they would also be a holy nation. In God's people, the world was supposed to see what it looked like for humanity to live in rightly ordered relationship with God and with others. This is how a kingdom of priests and a holy nation would live before the world. And in that way, then, Exodus appears to Exodus 19 then appears to be this fulfillment of God's promise to Abram that in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And buried in this understanding of who they were to be was this awareness that there are other people who do not know God, do not believe God. And so God's people then would be a witness to the world. There is this missional component to what it means to be a kingdom of priests, what it means to be his most prized possession, what it means to be a holy nation. How does that holy identity inform us today as Christians? If you were a follower of Jesus, Peter then picks up on this in 1 Peter 2, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so Christians, if you wake up, you just feel like, I just don't feel like I've been adopted. I, I just don't feel like I'm a holy nation. I don't feel like I'm a part of a holy nation. I don't feel like I'm a treasured possession of God. just encourage you, run to the truth of God's word, that if you belong to him, this is who you are. No matter your feelings, this is who you are. For those of you who constantly audit your sin patterns and continue to, to be downcast and gloomy because you think I can never be as holy as I should be, I can't approach God. I, I need someone else to do that for me. Jesus would look you, eye, look you in the eye this morning and say, no, 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 if you belong to me, you are those things. And that doesn't then motivate you to just say, well, let me abuse grace all the more. No, it brings you to a place where you say, why in the world would you, the Holy One, set your affection and your love on me and accept me even though I still struggle the way that I do? And the Lord would just break us down with his kindness. He would woo us to obedience through mercy. And so if you need help with your identity this morning or tomorrow morning or on Friday evenings, if you are in Christ because of Christ, this is who you are. You are his most prized possession. You are a kingdom of priests. 
You are a holy nation. And there is nothing that this world can offer us that will come close to touching the riches that are found in that identity. But not everyone is called this. And if you are here and you've never turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus, then none of this is true of you. And that message is meant to offend you and to bring you to the end of yourself. So that instead of thinking, if you just try a little bit harder, you would look to the one who has accomplished it all. And you would turn from your sin and you would in faith trust him. So that you, a people who were once not a people, you can become a part of the people of God. Brings us to wonder number two. The wonder of a God, the wonder of the God who is perfectly holy. The wonder of the God who is perfectly holy. We see this in verses 7 through 15. So again, just listen to the word of the Lord. So Moses came and called the elders of all the people of the people and set before them these words which the Lord had commanded them. And all the people answered together and said, "All that the Lord has spoken, we will do." So you see the picture. They're on board. We're going to do this. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. So you see Moses going up and down the mountain. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud so that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you forever. Then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord also said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. The Lord promises them so much if they will just believe and obey. And he invites them to obey as a demonstration of their belief, as a demonstration of their dependence upon him and their allegiance to him and their gratitude to him for the mercy that they received that they did not deserve. And so Israel says, we agree, we will enter in. And the second conversation then begins in verse 9. And the Lord says, behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud. The invisible God will make himself visible by appearing in a thick cloud and by speaking to Moses in an audible voice, so, so much so that the people of God will overhear God speak. Prior to this moment, God has only spoken to Moses privately, but in this moment, in this thick, dense cloud, a more intense and a more awe-inspiring event would happen. They would hear for the first time the voice of God himself audibly. It would be a divine confirmation 
as Moses is taking these griping, testing people into the wilderness, and when hardship comes upon them, they not only turn their back and say, God, who are you? But they look at Moses and they say, Moses, who are you? Why should we be following you? This moment is going to be confirmation for all who hear that Moses is indeed the chosen one who is to go and to speak to God on behalf of us and come back and relate to, uh, re- relay to us what God has spoken to him. Moses' role as divine mediator would be clearly seen. And as we read about this, we're meant to feel the great distance that separates this altogether transcendent, just holy, different God and the sinful people. And verse 10 tells us that consecration, this 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 process of setting ourselves apart, readying ourselves. This consecration is necessary. Why? Because the Lord is coming down. And just behold the graciousness of God in those words. The Lord will come down. I mean, it's extraordinary mercy. It sums up the story of salvation that God came down to us. And it's only by his coming down and his speaking, and his revealing that his people would know him. His people weren't out looking for God. They didn't discover God. God graciously revealed himself to them. This is why there is hope for anyone who hears good news. Regardless of whether you're in the market for God, God is always in the market for his people. And God will always reveal himself and make himself abundantly known for his people. And his people will respond. Graciously coming down to them. Just revealing to them the vast difference that's between God and themselves. He cannot be approached just by anyone. And he must not be approached casually. It's the scene in... I don't know if you can preach this and not think of the scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. When they're at the house of Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, they're asking, what is, what is Aslan like? Is he safe? No, he's not safe. But he's good. He's good. He's not a tame lion, but he's indescribably delightful. And he should not be treated casually. We love to think of God as friendly. And praise be to God, sinners can become friends of his. But we often don't think of him as appropriately to be feared. And they must consecrate themselves before they can meet with him. They must prepare for this encounter with God. And they have two days to get ready. Because he's coming on the third day. And again, just even the beauty of those words, that God would come on the third day. Three days and he's on the move. 
And the consecration, it begins with the washing of garments. And this would appear to be all throughout the scriptures a symbolic act outwardly of an inward preparation of the heart. J. Alec Maltier says, frequently in the Bible, clothes are used as symbols of the nature and the intentions of the wearer. And so clothes then reveal the intentions of one, one's heart. Washing of the garment appears to be the acknowledgement of their need for a cleansing of sin so that they would be able to go into the presence of God. But it's not just that they needed to wash their clothes. They needed to kind of do the, the inward heart preparation revealed in the external act of washing their clothes. But then they were to make boundaries, set off the base of the mountain. The holiness of God required that the mountain not even be contaminated by the sinfulness of those who, who violate his holiness. We saw this when God met with Moses in Exodus chapter 3. Take off your ground because now that I'm here, take off your feet, uh, your shoes. <laughs> Don't take off the ground or your feet. Take off your shoes because the place that you're standing is holy ground. These boundaries would serve to protect God's people. Wasn't merely trying to restrict them. I just imagine the conversations that would have, be, that would have been had in the households. Children, do not go and climb up that mountain. But why, Dad? Because we are preparing ourselves to meet with the Lord. The Holy One is coming down. And we are not holy. And so we ready ourselves. And the penalty is quite severe. You run up on that mountain, you touch that mountain, you're to be put to death. And I wonder if that penalty seems a bit overkill. I mean, does that seem a little too severe? What in the world is this doing in the Bible? Like, how in the world do I talk to someone who's not a Christian about Exodus chapter 19? And why would a God who graciously lifts up his people on eagles' wings also lay down these restrictions that would require the death penalty even if someone accidentally touched the mountain? If, those, if that penalty and those regulations seem to be a bit severe, it's most likely because you've done what we're all prone to do. And that's to underestimate the holiness of our God. And to underestimate the seriousness of our sin. If we're unfamiliar with God's holiness and with our sinfulness, then we will be most vulnerable to be disturbed by these restrictions and such a harsh penalty. If you've not read The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul, I would encourage you to take time to just read that book. And Sproul says, of our, of our struggle with passages like this, is we find these things difficult to stomach because we don't understand four vitally important biblical concepts. Holiness, justice, sin, and grace.
holiness, justice, sin, and grace. And I would commend that book to you because that book will do an excellent job of showing you what the Bible teaches about those four concepts. And it will introduce you helpfully to God in regards to those four areas. And until you and I have some understanding of those things, then we will not understand grace. Until we understand something of God's holiness and something of his judgment and something of our sin, we will never be amazed by grace. What should amaze us is that God's mercy and his forbearance and his patience with such an unholy people that God would be slow to anger in punishing their sin. What should amaze us is that he is willing to come down and to reveal himself to a people in light of all of their sinfulness. He graciously provides a provision and protection that will allow them to meet with him on the third day. I mean, it's stunning that God would even want to meet with a people like this and that he would make a way for a people like that to actually meet with him. I mean, it's meant, Exodus 19 is meant to take our breath away. And all of this is preparatory for what we're going to see in the building up of the tabernacle. This God bears no resemblance with the Egyptian idols that they were familiar with. There's only one who's allowed to ascend and descend this mountain, and that's Moses. And that's because Moses, and only Moses, was the mediator of this covenant between God and his people. And then verse 15 ends by saying, and stay away from a woman. This preparation of readying ourselves to meet with God included abstaining from anything that could distract them, including sexual intimacy in the confines of a marriage relationship. They must not be distracted even by good gifts that God gives. Not for the next two days. In light of what's about to go down on the third day, this Holy One, He gets all the undivided attention. And that's actually what Paul says about marriage and intimacy in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I wonder what they were anticipating. They had seen the plagues and the Red Sea and the pillar of fire and the cloud and the manna and the water. I wonder what it must have been like. The expectation must have been palpable. And whenever they heard the ram horn blow loud and long, then they could approach the foot of the mountain and they could meet with God. And I wonder if hearing about this, I wonder this morning, how would you answer, are you ready to meet with this God? Like, do you want to meet with this God? And here's the reality, that when death makes eye contact with you and it is coming you will most definitely meet with this God. You will appear before him. And the Bible is clear that it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes the judgment. And there is nothing that you and I can do that can, that can clean ourselves, that can set apart our... We can't consecrate ourselves enough to be ready for that encounter. You can't make yourself holy enough to meet and survive this holy one because you, like me, are a covenant breaker. 
And you, like me, are in need of a mediator. And Moses was a mediator for them, but Moses was insufficient. And Moses' insufficiency points us to the greater mediator who was sufficient. The one that is to come, Jesus the Christ. And this old covenant points us to a better new covenant that would come through his life and his death and his resurrection. This God does the unthinkable and he graciously sends his only begotten son and he condescends by coming down to earth and living perfectly and dying in the place of hell deserving and wrath earning sinners like you and like me. And he would rise on the third day from the dead. We should be disturbed by these truths. That his holiness and our sinfulness would require such a payment. And I hope this morning, if you're not a Christian, that you are disturbed enough to cry out to this Savior for his mercy. There is one God and one mediator, the man Christ Jesus. And this mediator, truly God, truly man would humble himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He is much better than Moses. And the good news this morning is that you can belong to that God and you access him through the work of Jesus Christ and that alone. If you're not a Christian this morning, I would plead with you you will find nothing that this life offers that is better than belonging to this God. And you will find there's nothing in yourself that can get you there other than faith and trust in the work of Christ. Turn from your sin today. Trust him today. Believe in him today. And we conclude with the wonder. Number three, the wonder of God coming and speaking to us. Verses 16 through 25 recounts what it is that the people saw. So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses up uh, to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, go down, warn the people so that they do not break through to the Lord to gaze and many of them perish and let also the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves or else the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai for you warned us saying set bounds about the mountain and consecrate it. And then the Lord said to him, go down and come up again, you and Aaron with you, but do not let the priest and the people break through to come up to the Lord or he will break forth upon them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. God's people meet with the Lord for the very first time. The first time since they have been delivered in such an overwhelming way. It begins with thunder. It begins with thunder and lightning and a very loud trumpet blast. 
Sinai is wrapped in smoke, billowing upward like a furnace. The Lord descends on the mountain like a fire. They begin to feel the ground beneath them move and the ever-growing uh, ever loud sound of the trumpet. I mean, all of this, everything, all of these truths about God being different from them and set apart from them, it's, they're experiencing the visible reality of that. D.A. Carson said, God wants his people to know that he has rescued them. He also wants them to know that he's not a domesticated deity that's happily bestowing tribal blessings upon them. He is not only a good God, but a terrifying and awesome God. And before this God, not only did the mountain tremble, but so did the people. And Moses begins to speak, and God answers in thunder. The Lord came down and met with his people. Moses would write about this in Deuteronomy chapter 4. And he would say, Has any people heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire as you have heard it and survived? I mean, what they lived through was unheard of. They met with the Lord, heard him speak, and they lived through it. And maybe you're here thinking, man, if I could have that experience, then I would believe. And Jesus addresses that by saying, the problem with your unbelief is not your ears. It's your heart. It's your heart. What you need this morning is not an experience of a mountain that quakes and a God that thunders audibly. Your need this morning is to believe that what this word says is true and submit your life to that. And if I can just speak a word to my Christian brothers and sisters, praise be to God that you and I, in coming to him, we weren't called to this mountain. And you say, Justin, what do you mean? Because the New Testament speaks of a strikingly different mountain with stunning implications for every Christian. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 24. For you, speaking to Christians, have not come to a mountain that can be touched and to a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind. And so just listen to how the author of Hebrews describes Mount Sinai. Blazing. Darkness, gloom, whirlwind, to a blast of trumpet, and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word would be spoken to them. For even they could not bear the command, if, a, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. There is something about that mountain that praise be to God, Christians today get to avoid. We get to avoid relating to God this way because there has been one who has absorbed judgment 
And now the mount that we experience is a completely different mount. Look at verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the myriads of angels, to the general assembly in the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Moses was an insufficient mediator and as such, there was, there was a holy terror that took, that took over on that day on Mount Sinai. But praise be to God, Jesus is the better mediator and the terror has been absorbed so that now we stand in awe and we wonder at the work of this new mediator. This mountain is different because of Jesus. This mountain is different because of his work. On the cross, the, the wrath of God was satisfied and our salvation was secured. Do you want to know why the angels and the festal clothing and the celebrations are happening on this mountain? It's because of this mediator. It's because of this new covenant. It's because there was a once for all cleansing for sin. And that sacrifice speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Jesus' blood speaks pardon to sinners like you and me who trust in his death and his resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus explains the difference, or Jesus is the explanation for the difference of the two mountains. Not a voice that speaks from a cloud, but the incarnate God who has come down to help us know our sin and where forgiveness can be found. Praise be to God, we don't have to go to Sinai. Praise be to God, because of the work that was on the hill of Calvary, we get access to Zion. John Newton would write a song about this reality. The song was called, Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder. And this is how Newton would summarize the truths here. Let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder and he has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us with, us, with his blood and he has brought us nigh to God. Let us love the Lord who bought us, pitied us when enemies, called us by his grace and taught us, gave us ears and gave us eyes. He has washed us with his blood and he presents our souls to God. Let us sing though fierce temptations threaten hard to bear us down. For the Lord, our strong salvation, holds in view the conqueror's crown. He who washed us with his blood soon will bring us home to God. Let us wonder grace and justice, join and point to mercy's store. When through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. He who washed us with his blood has secured our way to God. And let us praise and join the chorus of the saints enthroned on high. Here they trusted before us. Now their praises fill the sky. Thou hast washed us with thy blood. Thou art worthy, Lamb of God. Church, we are meant 
to sing to this God. And we're meant to remember this God. And even the unspeakable privilege of what it, meant, what it means to belong to this God. And one of the ways that we do that as a memorial is that we come to this table. And we come to this table on the terms that he has set. Coming to this table does not earn you favor with this God. In fact, if you try to come to this table and earn favor, you actually will drink judgment upon yourself. And so we come to this table believing that the work of Jesus is sufficient. And so if you're here and you are a follower of Jesus, you have been baptized in obedience to Jesus, you are a member in good standing of a church that preaches the good news about how you can be made right with God through the work of Jesus, if you're walking in repentance of sin, you're in living in reconciliation with one another, then this table is open for you, and those, every one of those things matter. It matters first that you identify in baptism before you try to identify at the supper. It matters that, another, that a faithful gospel-preaching church has affirmed your profession of faith. This isn't just a self-professed faith. It's a faith that is affirmed by the people of God. It matters that you're seeking to turn from your sin and walk in repentance. And it matters that if there's broken relationships that you have with others, that you go be made right before you try to come even as an act of worship here. And so if you're imperfect, but you're willing to do each of those things or you have done those things, then this table is for you. And this meal is meant to stir up your faith and give you great confidence that because of the work of Jesus, breaking of his body, shedding of his blood, you can belong to this kind of God. Let me pray, then the elements will be passed. God, as we come to you, we pray that you would grant us faith. Grow us, even as we take this covenant meal. Grow our faith. Help us be in awe of the reality that you, you secure and you accomplish what we need. And so as the elements are passed and we wait, I pray that you would give us opportunity to reflect and that we would thank you. God, this is not merely meant to be a somber meal. It's meant to be celebratory. And so help us rejoice in your salvation that you have given us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.